Well, welcome everybody. Glad to be with you once again tonight. And this is going to be our final hot potatoes message in this series right here. Now, have no fear. Those, uh, those hot potatoes will probably make a comeback in the future because there is certainly no shortage of controversial subjects in our world that need addressing from time to time, but we are going to wind down this, uh, this series with this final message tonight as we prepare to dive into that. Uh, I just want to let you know uh, our next full-on series on Wednesday nights going to start in a few weeks, and it's called Understanding Bible Prophecy. And so we're going to take a look at how to study Bible prophecy. A lot of people are interested in that. What are we going to do next week? Something out of the ordinary, something very, very different. Somebody came up to me the other day and they asked me a, a Bible question. And so we were standing there and I was trying to explain this question to this person, the answer to this question the best that I could using the scriptures. And then they said, Pastor Scott, do you get a lot of Bible questions? And I said, well, yeah, I, I, I do. People ask me verbally like this. Uh, I get them in my inbox, in my email. I get them on Facebook Messenger. I get them texted to me on my phone and such. And they said, would you ever consider doing a Bible Q&A? Would, would that be something that we would ever do here? And I said, you know, I'd be totally open to doing that if we got some questions. And so we're going to try that out. We're going to do that next week. And if you are interested, you can email questions to the church. Now, I don't have all the answers, but I promise you this. If we get some questions, I will do my best to be diligent, search the scriptures, and, and give a faithful answer to the best of my ability and my interpretation of God's word. Here is the email that you can send those to. Those of you who are here in person or watching online, you are welcome to submit those as well. And we will see what we get. And if we don't get through all of them next week, maybe, just maybe, we'll take a second week and tackle some of those. I used to have a young adults Bible study where we did this. Young adults are ravenous for the Word of God. They've got a ton of questions. And uh, so the name of that group was Ichthus. Ichthus is a Greek word. It means fish. You've all seen the fish symbol. Uh, the, the Jesus fish, as people call it. That's called an Ichthus. And it's an acronym. And it stands for letters or words, rather, in the Greek uh, that, that basically in English are translated as Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. And it's this acronym that in the Greek is the word for fish, ichthus. And we had uh, a box when we would gather, and in that box, it was a tackle box. We called it the tackle box, uh, following that fish motif. And in that box were questions, and from time to time we would address those questions. And so we're going to do a little mini version of that next week, and I'm looking forward to that. But tonight, we're going to wind down our Hot Potatoes uh, series here. And uh, the subject that we're going to talk about is not necessarily an offensive subject to everybody, but if we define a hot potato as something that the church just holds on to very briefly and then gets rid of uh, that we never talk about or that we seldom talk about, this certainly would fit the bill. Because one of the touchiest subjects with people is the issue of money. Of money. Somebody said, I noticed you didn't post the subject online, Pastor Scott. And, uh, you know, no comment. But it is a touchy subject, especially the issue of giving, what we are expected to give at church. Now, as I understand it, here at the Lamb's Chapel, historically, there's not been 
a lot of talk about money, about giving. And I do understand and appreciate the reason why. Because as I understand it, the the rationale has been that the Lord has supplied greatly for this ministry. And uh, the reason they didn't talk about money is because we trust God to supply our every need. It is not dependent upon man. And uh, we don't feel the need to, to ask for, to solicit, to beg for money. That God will accomplish his purposes in his way. I fully embrace that. Dependence upon God. Very biblical perspective. I also appreciate, as a pastor, uh, the notion that we don't eat up a lot of time on the stage uh, taking up an offering. I, I was very refreshing when I first walked in these doors months ago uh, to see the worship team, and then they finish their set, and they go down, and then I come up, and I get to teach. I love that. I don't like to clutter up the stage with a lot of different content and commercials and such. Uh, one of the few churches I've ever been in where we did not past the plate, as it were. Uh, If you've been a part of this scene for very long, you know the different ways that you can give. You can give at the door. We've got ushers with buckets. Pretty soon we're going to have boxes on the walls. You can give at any time you want as you walk out these doors. You can give online. You can arrange for it to come automatically out of your account. You can text to give. There's instructions concerning all of that stuff. But historically, we don't talk about money all that much, except when it appears in the text. And that is the rationale, and I understand that rationale. Now, other churches avoid the subject altogether, and they have a different rationale. And their rationale is, we don't talk about money because people don't like to hear about money. Some people don't think the the church needs much money to operate. They certainly don't feel that it needs their money to operate. Uh, How many of you, and this might date some of you, how many of you remember a comedian named Flip Wilson? Oh, yeah? Wow. You guys are old. Uh, Flip Wilson, funny, funny man. He's, he's no longer with us, but Flip Wilson had a bit called The Church of What's Happening Now. Remember this? And he had this reverend character, and Flip Wilson would come out as the reverend, and he would address the audience, and the congregation would talk back to him. There are some churches like that. Okay? And so he would come out, and he goes, Church, I got to make this church move. And they'd say, make it move, Rev, make it move. And he said, but before I can make it move, I got to let it crawl. And they'd say, let it crawl, Rev, let it crawl. And he'd say, but once I make it crawl, then I'm going to make it stand and walk. And they'd say, make it walk, Rev, make it walk. And he'd say, but once I make it walk, then I can make it run. And they'd say, make it run, Rev, make it run. And he says, but if it's going to run, I'm going to need some money. And they said, let it crawl, Rev. Let it crawl. So it can be a a touchy subject for some people. But listen to me. Hear me out here. What if? What if we didn't talk about money in the church because we needed this or that? What if we didn't talk about money and giving in the church because giving is down and we are desperate for your funds? What if that wasn't the rationale rationale behind why we talk about money? Because the reality is in this church, this is a very financially solvent church. God has blessed us. We have a beautiful building. We are paying on that building. We could write a check tomorrow and have to pay no more on that building. So that is not the issue. Should we still talk about giving? I believe that we should. And so tonight I want to give you the proper perspective on giving 
in the local church. But before we dive into this, I'm, I'm going to pray. And I will pray with one eye open to see who walks out, okay? <laughs> Just kidding. Heavenly Father, I ask your blessing upon our time together tonight, Lord. You do care about everything in our lives, including our finances. And you certainly care about your church. And show us tonight the marriage of those two things by your design. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to look tonight at a couple of passages. Uh, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 will make up the majority of what we look at. We are going to jump around to some other texts in there. We're going to start in 2 Corinthians 8. And that, those two chapters comprise the largest text in your Bible on money and on giving. And the first six verses of 2 Corinthians 8 teach us a whole lot. We're going to start in verse 1. Look here with me. It says, Paul writes, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God. I want you to underline that word grace. The under, underline the word grace. Now, in your Bibles, if you've got your Bibles open or if you've got your phone up or whatever, I want you to look down that passage. So that's verse 1. He says, I want you to, to understand, I want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God. Now, you follow that down to, to the end of this particular passage, verse 6, and I want you to see how verse 6 ends. It's got a line. So he should complete among you this act of grace. Grace, all right? So this passage that is all about giving, it begins and ends with the theme of grace. The Christian is the one who has received grace. And it is expected of the one who has received grace to grow in that grace. What do we call that when we grow in grace as a believer? We call that discipleship. That's called discipleship. And this passage demonstrates that part of that growth is facilitated by giving. And so in your notes, proper perspective on giving, the first one is that giving is vital, vital to discipleship. If you want to become a disciple, a, an authentic, genuine, undeniable follower of Jesus Christ... You have to understand and apply giving in your life. This is where we begin. Because our number one goal at TLC is to make disciples. And as we do that, we are to be faithful to teach the whole counsel of God's word. Because the Bible is God's revelation to us. We know from 2 Timothy 3, which we've read in here many times, verse 16, Scripture is from God. We know that. It's, it's breathed out by God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped. He may be perfect and thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so we teach the whole counsel of God and part of that counsel includes giving. And it's for your betterment. It's for your discipleship. And so we go on. Paul says, we want you to know about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Macedonia. Now, uh, Paul has a delegate. He's got an apostolic delegate by the name of Titus. And Titus is about to come to this region called Macedonia. 
There are churches in Macedonia. There are Greek churches. The Macedonian churches would be Philippi, uh, Thessalonica, Berea. The Greek churches would be Corinth, Athens, Sancria. You got one area north, one south. And Paul is about to go into Ephesus. He's about to go into Galatia. That's, that's the, the start, the, the launching place of the first missionary journey. And here in this passage, we are going to see the first example of the universal uh, sense of the body of Christ. There's going to be this awareness of these believers in one area of the existence of believers in another area. Now, we have a concept of that. We know that there are Christians all over North Carolina, all over the nation, all over the continent, and around the world. In that day, this is a novel concept. They start in Israel, they move out from there, and then those novice believers are made aware of other believers. We here in Macedonia hear about those in Greece and we know about those back in Jerusalem. And so we've got the, the dawning of this concept of a global church. There are local churches and there is the global church. And so flowing out of the hearts of the believers in Macedonia is this, this incredible spirit of giving, of giving for the purpose of the larger body of Christ. And it is integral to their identity. They understood it as part of their identity. Now, why would they think of giving as part of their identity? Because of who their master is. Who is their master? Their master is Jesus. And as I mentioned before, what a lot of people don't like about some churches is that churches talk too much about money. I don't go to that church anymore because all they do is talk about money down there. You want to know who talked about money more than about Anybody? Jesus. He talked about money all the time. Matthew 6, 24, he says, No one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. Matthew 19, he tells the rich young ruler to go sell all you have, give it to the poor. Mark 12, he highlights this widow who gives all she has at the temple treasury. Luke 3, he tells the tax collectors, don't collect more than you should. He tells the soldiers, don't extort, don't, uh, don't uh, you know, be less than content with your wages. Luke 16, he says, the one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in very much. And, and over and over, and that's just scraping the surface there, but at the heart of all of this is this basic message of hold on loosely to your wealth. Hold on loosely to your possessions. Are you holding on loosely to what you have? Or are you clinging to it with all you've got? You know who Corey Ten Boom was? The hiding place. Uh, famous Dutch believer, author, Christian author, uh, survivor of World War II. She was in a prison camp. She visited uh, the home church of Chuck Swindoll when he was in Southern California. Shortly before her death, she visited that church and Pastor Chuck met with her after the service and he had all kinds of questions for her because she's such a, a legendary saint. And uh, he, she dominated their time together by asking him questions. She wanted to know all about his family and he was sharing about his family and she asked him questions about every child, their names, their ages, everything. And so he was telling her and she could see that he was very attached to his family. And then she said to him, in her thick Dutch accent, she said, Pastor Schwendahl, you must learn to hold everything loosely. Everything. Even your dear family. Why? Because the father may wish to take one of them back to himself. And when he does, it will hurt you if he must 
pry your fingers loose. And he said, I'll never forget that. I'll never forget what she said to me. Because in the Christian life, there is this concept that nothing we have, nothing we have is truly ours. It does not belong to us. We don't all grasp that when we get saved. That is not something that you come into the Christian life really, really getting. you got to grow to that understanding. And that is discipleship. And Paul goes on and in uh, verse 2 he says, For in a, so speaking of these Macedonian churches, he says, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. And this is the second thing I want you to know in your notes, that giving is sacrificial. Giving is sacrificial. Now, often people justify not giving because of uh, you know, hardship or a lack of income, uh, a state of poverty. Well, the people that Paul is writing about here, they were, he, he, he describes it as extreme poverty. They were in extreme poverty. They were afflicted, and yet, he says, they overflowed in a wealth of generosity. And so despite this impoverishment, this need... They gave, and how did they give? The English word that he uses is generosity. Uh, Other translations say liberality. Does somebody have liberality? Folks, the only time I'm going to encourage you to be liberal is in your giving, all right? Just know that right there, okay? Let's get that square. Um, But the original word here in the Greek, sometimes I'll throw Greek at you, all right? Hope you don't mind that. Haplotes is the Greek word. Now, that can be translated as generous, Uh, The better translation is simply not self-seeking. Not self-seeking. So this is giving without thought for oneself. And I'll be honest, I'm not crazy about the word generosity when we talk about giving in the church. I know that's a very popular term that is used by churches today when they talk about giving, when they talk about the offering. Uh, Some people will say, we've got a new generosity campaign. We're encouraging people to be generous with their giving. Uh, You know, here's here's the reason I'm not nuts about the word generous when it comes to giving. When you're generous, you're being magnanimous, you're being benevolent with what is yours. You are sharing what is yours with other people. You're being charitable, you understand. And when I think about giving, I don't think of it that way. What are we really talking about? We're not talking about you being generous with what you have. We're talking about stewardship. We're talking about stewardship. Now that may not be as romantic a word. That may not roll off your tongue quite like generosity, but I think it's more accurate. What is a steward? A steward is defined as someone who is responsible for the interests of the one in authority over them. That's what a steward is. You you, you remember uh, flight attendants used to be called stewardesses or stewards if they were male, right? Uh, Why were they called that? They probably got rid of the term because of the gender-specific language involved in that. But uh, why were they called stewards and stewardesses? Because they were responsible to the airline for the well-being of the passengers during the flight. They took care of you. They fed you. They looked after your every need as you went from point A to point B. Now they've changed their name to flight attendant. They throw some crackers at you and they tell you to shut your laptop. But you get the idea. 
And so the idea of stewardship is that what we have is not really ours it's God's. We're just stewards of it. And so to help us see that, to help us get that, God asks us to give sacrificially, to be selfless. This is modeled by Jesus Christ, Philippians 2. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so we are to follow the example of Jesus Christ. And that notion... That notion of sacrifice, that is, that is throughout your Bible. It is not a man-made institution. It is a divine institution. God initiated the concept of a sacrifice. Way back in Genesis chapter 3, after the fall in the garden, God made a sacrifice. And a sacrifice, uh, the, the Hebrew word means to slaughter for the offering. It is a means by which we present acceptable worship to God. That's what a sacrifice is. And throughout the Old Testament, we've got this concept pictured in the Jewish system. Sacrifices for the Jews in Israel. They could be either first fruits of the harvest. They could be animal sacrifices. But the point is, a sacrifice is something of value. It's worth something. And in the Christian life, there is this concept that we have nothing that belongs to us and we are to give something of value back to God. Jesus makes an example of the widow in Mark 12. And uh, she comes to the temple treasury and what does she offer? She offers two coins, two small coins. They're called mites. You know what a mite was? That was the smallest coin in Israel. In, in fact, in the entire New Testament area, uh, era, rather. There was no smaller amount of money in, in currency that you could give. A denarius, by contrast, was worth a day's wage. Well, a mite was uh, 164th of a denarius. Uh, today, a mite would be one-eighth of a penny. One-eighth of a penny. She gave two mites. And Jesus sees all these other wealthy folks, and they're dropping their cash big sums of money in the temple treasury. And Jesus says to his disciples, he says, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they contributed out of their abundance. She, out of her poverty, she gave sacrificially. It hurt her financially to give. She gave everything she had all she had to live on. So what does this tell us? God's not impressed with how much you give. He's impressed with how sacrificially you give. That's what speaks to God. That's what he cares about. And when you think of the concept of an offering in the Old Testament era, sometimes it would take the form of a burnt offering. And the thing about a burnt offering, when you put that offering on the altar, that offering is fuel for the fire. Okay? If you don't have fuel, you don't have a fire. And if you are not being sacrificial today, Christian, in your life, there's no fuel for the flame. And what that means is a life that is not sacrificial is a life that has extinguished the flame. If you live a sacrificial life, you are living a life that is on fire for God. On fire for God. Now, having said that, Paul goes on and he says in verse uh, three, for they, the Macedonian Christians who are in abject poverty, they gave according to their means 
as I could testify, he saw it, he witnessed it, and beyond their means. And then there's a phrase I want you to underline, of their own accord. They gave of their own accord. And what that tells us is the next thing I want you to see in your notes is that giving is voluntary. Okay, Giving is vital to your discipleship. Giving is sacrificial, but giving is voluntary. Now that does not mean optional. Giving is an expectation of the Christian. Make no mistake. What this means, that it's voluntary, it means that you exercise freedom in your response to God. Uh, This is the concept of free will giving, giving from the heart. There is biblically, for the Christian, no prescription as to a specific amount that we are supposed to give to the church. There is also no prescription... I'm about to blow some of your minds, depending on your background, your upbringing. There is no prescription as to a specific percentage that you are to give to the church. Okay? You don't see that. We are to give, according to Scripture, proportionate to what we have. And we are to give with a measure of sacrifice, but it is to be voluntary. Voluntary. Uh, Paul writes in the next chapter, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. He says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Meaning what? Meaning the amount you give is not based on some fixed number. It's not based on some universal percentage. Now, some of you are going, whoa, 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 wait a minute. What about the tithe, pastor? Well, I was raised that you, you give 10%, 10%. That's what tithe means. Are we supposed to tithe? Shouldn't we give 10%? Well, I grew up that way too. That's what I was taught to. Let's talk about that. It's a great question. Let me just see what the word says here. In the Old Testament, Israel practiced a tradition of giving one-tenth of their increase. Whatever money they made, whatever possessions they acquired, before they enjoyed any of that, before they used any of that, ate any of that, whatever it was, they gave back to God 10%. That was a tradition predated Moses. Okay? So that was something they did before Mount Sinai uh, the law, the presentation of all, the, all that, when that finally came down, when the law was given, uh, it became a command. However, there was a wide diversity in how people gave in the Old Testament era. Not only did you have this, this 10% rule, uh, Israel was to give sacrifices. That cost money. Israel was to give, in addition, free will offerings. They were to give a redemption gift for their firstborn. Uh, their children. They were to give a redemption gift for their firstborn of, of their livestock. They were to pay various taxes to the temple. There were many other things. So this 10% tithe was just a, a starting point. It went as high or higher than 25% under the Mosaic Covenant. Um, but here's what you need to know. I mean, I remember sermons. I grew up, you know, in church, and I remember sermons, and I've heard them in other churches out of Malachi. Where, where it is preached to Christians from Malachi 3, you know, uh, you probably know this, this passage. Will a man rob God? How have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. Okay? Bring the full tithe into the storehouse. And so it's conveyed in these sermons that if you're not tithing 10% as dictated in our understanding, at least, of the Mosaic law, then you are participating in thievery. You're stealing from God. Here's what you need to understand. In the New Testament, in the New Testament, 
other than the mention of this in a parable, other than a reference to Abraham uh, paying a tithe uh, in, in the book of Hebrews, You've got an instance in the Gospels in one spot. It's technically two spots, but it's two different Gospels. And it's a parallel, so it's really one instance. That speaks of a tithe. And in that context, the Pharisees are being criticized for keeping a detailed record of their tithe while ignoring the rather important issues of justice and the love of God. And so they're being rebuked. Those are the only references to the tithe in the New Testament. Now why the silence on this matter? And it's simply this. Christians are not under the Mosaic law. We don't live under the Mosaic law. We're not Israel. The church is not Israel. We're part of not the old covenant. We're part of the new covenant. Meaning the specific provisions of the law were for a unique people in a unique time. And I can back that up. Paul says in Romans 7, 4, Likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. So we still bear fruit from God, but not as according to the law and the letter of the law. Romans 10, 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Galatians three twenty three. Before faith came, we were held captive under the law imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian, a placeholder. Until what? Until Christ came in order that we might be justified through faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. We're no longer under the law. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Hebrews 8.13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one, what's the first one? The law. He makes it obsolete. Obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Words of Paul. Right? Well, that's well, Hebrews. I don't know who wrote Hebrews, but the rest of it is Paul for sure. And the gospel, this is the point. The gospel changes how we think about things. The gospel changes. There is a reason, folks, that circumcision is not mandated for Christians. In the New Testament era. There is a reason that we don't have uh, uh, a, a dedicated Sabbath as a day of rest. Where it's mandated on this particular day you do nothing. Now as much as I would like a full nap day. I would enjoy that very much. Alright we don't have it. Because that's part of the old system. There's a reason that you are permitted. I'm about to hear an amen here. To eat bacon. And Carolina barbecue. Amen. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Okay? There's a reason for all of that. Because we're not under that covenant. But, but, that doesn't mean that we don't give. It doesn't mean we don't give. And as we've already said, we are to give sacrificially. We're just saying there's not a specific percentage that we are mandated to give. And here's the thing, I would add this. Jesus had a way of elevating the law. He had a way of amping it up. He had a way of taking it up a notch. Have you noticed that about Jesus? Uh, when he says in certain places, you have read or you have heard it said or you have heard it taught. And he'll say things like, uh, you know, it's been taught, you shall not murder. But I say, what? If you have hatred in your heart toward a brother, you're guilty of murder. You have heard it said, 
you shall not commit adultery. But I say, if you've looked lustfully upon a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. And so even though it's not written this way specifically, you could carry that logic on. You've heard it said, you shall give X percentage of your money, but I say, you see. And so that's the logical conclusion. I would merely ask you this to ask yourselves. Would a Christian under grace give less than a Jew under the law? Because of what we have been given, because of who we are in Christ, because giving is our identity, and because, in your notes, giving is a privilege. Giving is a privilege. Paul goes on to verse 4, he says, begging us, this is the church at Macedonia, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Do you see that? They begged Paul to let them give which affirms that it's voluntary. If it were mandatory, they wouldn't beg. They'd just do it. They were begging to give. They're chomping at the bit to do it. They're imploring Paul for the opportunity to contribute to the greater needs of the church. They're begging it. Now, I don't know many pastors that wouldn't let somebody give if they're begging to give. Oh, I suppose. You know? But it seems, to, it seems to be the case that, that Paul uh, might have some reservations about approaching them with the prospect or at least encouraging them to give because of why? Because of their situation. They were in abject poverty. It, it probably was something he struggled with humanly. And yet they are, they are asking for the opportunity. It is a privilege to get to take part in what God is doing. That is the right perspective on giving. Acts 20, 35, Paul quotes Jesus, it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. More blessed to give than to receive. Some people give for the wrong reasons. Some people give for the promise of prosperity. There are people who do that, all right? That's not the blessed. When Jesus says it's more blessed to give than to receive, he's not talking about if you give, you'll, you'll be blessed and you'll prosper financially. You know, and we've all seen those snake oil televangelists that, that uh, get a word from the Lord that if you give to our ministry, God's going to bless your life financially and blah, blah, blah. No, giving is the blessing. Giving is the blessing. 2 Corinthians 9, 7, God loves a cheerful giver. Cheerful, the word there in the Greek, hiloros. Uh, hiloros, what, what word do we get from that? Hilarious. God loves a hilarious giver. A hilarious giver, that's joy. We aren't cheerful or joyful because of what will happen for us if we give. We're cheerful because of what happens to us. When we give with the right motivation, what happens to us? We fulfill our shape in the body of Christ. We become more like Christ because you're never more like Christ than when you are giving. Because he is a giving God and we become more like him. We grow in his likeness. We are graciously involved in his work. It's a privilege. And Paul says in verse 5, and this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord. First to the Lord. They gave what? Themselves. Everything that they were. That's more than money, folks. That's more than money. They gave everything they had. That takes 
total dedication, total consecration, holding nothing back. When you say, I'm all yours, Lord, your wallet is implied in that. Okay? It goes without saying. If you're not willing to give your wallet, then you can't say, I'm all yours, Lord. You're certainly not giving yourself if you don't give that minute part of your life. And so all of this in this verse, when they say they gave themselves to who? To the Lord. They gave first to the Lord. And so in your notes, giving is an act of worship. Did you know that? When you give, it's an act of worship. Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies. That means everything you are. That's just not one aspect of your life. That's every aspect, including your finances. Including your finances. When you give your bodies as a what? A living sacrifice. The means by which acceptable offering is made to God. He says, an acceptable God, which is your spiritual worship. Worship. Did you know when you see the word worship in your Bible, if you look at the original word for that in whatever language you're reading it in, or it was translated from, there is no one word. Sometimes I'll give you a word, like this is the word for this. Well, when it comes to worship, there's no one word. There are so many words. The word worship is an old English word. Worth, ship. Okay, ship being a quality. Worth, we know what worth is. And so when you worship, you are ascribing worth, the quality of worth to whatever you worship. Whatever that object or that person is, you are, you are saying, this has great worth. And so we offer something to God. That's the English context and concept of worship. But when you see the word worship in your Bible, it could come from a lot of different places with a lot of different meanings. So if you look at some of the Hebrew words that are used, there's a word halal. Halal sounds like a word that we say sometimes, doesn't it? Hallelujah. Right? Halal means uh, what? It means to celebrate. We celebrated when we sang together today. Some of these people up here, they were celebrating. They were dancing around. They were moving around. They were smiling. There's people out here dancing around, smiling, right? To celebrate. Uh, it also means to boast in a good way. Not, not to brag in yourself, but to boast in the Lord. We boast in the Lord. We celebrate in the Lord. Halal. Uh, there's, a, there's a Hebrew word, uh, yada. Yada. Not, not yada, yada, yada. But yada, yada means to uplift the hands. Do we do that sometimes in worship? I see some of you raising your hands in worship to lift up hands to the Lord uh, in, as though you are surrendering. You got Greek words translated as worship. Uh, there's a word proskuneo means to get down, face down before God's spirit of reverence. Proskuneo, prostrate is the word that we get from that. That is a word that means worship. And then there's this one. In the Greek, liturgia, liturgia, we get our word liturgy, liturgy. Some of you have uh, perhaps come from a church background where they were liturgical and they practiced liturgy, all right? And so it's, it carries this context of there's many different things and they're all associated with actions done in the local church, all right? And so it can mean uh, serving it can mean gathering corporately, as we are doing right now, but it can also mean giving, liturgia, to give, translated 
as worship. And we see that word liturgia in Romans 15, 27, for they were pleased to do it. Paul speaking of another church in Rome, Gentile Christians who wanted to give, just like these Macedonians. They're begging to give. Who do they want to give to? They want to give to the church back in Jerusalem. They want to help facilitate ministry back in Jerusalem, which is ironic and wonderful because it was it was the, the giving and the money of the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem that led to the creation of the church in Rome. And so now you've got these Christians in Rome that want to be a blessing to the Christians in Jerusalem. Isn't that beautiful? The body of Christ. And Paul says in Romans 15, 27, they were pleased to do it. And indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also be of service, liturgia, sometimes worship, Liturgia, to them in what? In material blessings. And so you get this giving context, almost a missions giving. Paul collecting from one church to bless another church. And so this is an act of worship. And they give first to God. Giving as an act of worship to God. And then he says, and then by the will of God to us. To us. First to God and then There's this significant phrase, by the will of God. Paul includes that phrase. Very notable that he says that first. It is by the will of God, he says, then they gave to us. It's by his will they gave to us. It's by God's will. Who is us? Paul, Timothy, Titus, these are the pastors. Okay, These are the spiritual leaders of of this local church. And so in your notes, what I want you to write down here, fill in, is that giving is how we facilitate ministry. It's how we facilitate ministry. Part of facilitating ministry in the local church is through the compensation or provision for your pastors. And I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for that. It's also evidence in the local church of submission in the body, two spiritual authorities that God has placed over the lives of believers. God has ordained the church. He's ordained the local church, and he has ordained leadership in the local church. We see the office of pastor. We see the office of elder. Uh, There is a concept that is biblical, that is New Testament, of salaried staff at a local church. That is a biblical idea. Not everybody understands that. Not everybody understands that. And Paul teaches on the whole idea that you pay your pastor, you compensate your pastor. You say, well, it's easy for you to say, may, may well that be the case. But I, I just want you to know, I'm opening the word of God, and here's what it says. 1 Corinthians 9, 7 through 11, Paul says, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Sometimes I feel like a soldier. Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say them? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? I've been called an ox before. Uh, Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much that we reap material things from you? Paul is recognizing the reality of this line of work. It is a legitimate uh, profession 
and job to pastor a flock. In Galatians 6, 6, let the one who has taught the word share all good things and with the one who teaches. 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Well, amen, Paul. All right? Obviously, I would say this, some, some who call themselves preachers and teachers have abused this. Is that true? Are there pastors that have abused this? 100%. Those snake oil guys, there are people who've embezzled money. Absolutely right. 1 Timothy 3 says clearly in the job description and the qualifications, rather, of pastors, they are not to be lovers of money. Very clear, they have no business being a pastor if they are consumed with money or a lover of money, but that does not mean that pastors should take a vow of poverty. It does not mean that pastors should be destitute and be all volunteer. Some are, they have chosen to be such, but the the basis for employing a staff is here. There will be times that we will come as the church begins to grow, as needs begin to arise. There are times we will come to the body and we will say, we're proposing a budget amendment because we have need in the church. We need to bring on more staff. We need more pastoral staff. I can tell you right now, looking at our body, we have need of that. We absolutely do. There are things God wants to accomplish in this church, and it takes the provision of God's people to see to the cultivation and the shepherding and the oversight of God's people and the conversion of those out there who are not yet God's people. And this is how the local church functions. And it's a fairly explicit command that when Christians give, they don't give in some general, vague sense to various ministry initiatives uh, and, and then call that stewardship. Now, there are wonderful ministries out and about in the world, but the Bible is clear that Christians give where they are fed and where they grow. Now, that can include other ministries. If you give to this church and you also support a missionary that you know or you've got a pastor whose ministry you appreciate from afar and you give to them, I commend that. I say that that is great. That is very kingdom-minded. However, given the passages that we've just read, it appears that such giving would be a supplement rather than a substitute for giving to the local church. The local church is the paradigm that God uses in the New Testament to foster his work. And when you give at Lamb's Chapel, just for example, in whatever manner you choose to give, we have a budget, part of that budget, and I would say greater than any church I have ever seen, part of that budget goes to external ministry partners. We support missions, we support local ministries, we, we support uh, humanitarian causes, we support evangelism uh, here in our community, around the world, in the region. And I'm going, next week, I went as, at the end of this month, I'm going down to Florida to the uh, Samaritan's Purse Global Connect Conference. We're a partner with that wonderful ministry. They do incredible work and we're proud to call them friends, proud to call them partners. And you take part in what God is doing around the world through their ministry, but you do it through the channel of this paradigm of the local church, which is what God has instituted in the New Testament for believers to join in and and to give where they are growing. And then we see in your notes, that giving is an opportunity to see God bless. To see God bless. So I'm going to jump into the next chapter here, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8. It says, and God is able, and I love verses that start with that 
phrase. God is able. Paul says it all the time. God is able. You guys believe that God is able? God is able to make all grace. Now, listen very carefully to the words. All grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work as it is written. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Did you see how many times all appears in that verse? All grace, all sufficiency, all things, all times, all good deeds and works. Just a string of extremes. All these superlatives after superlatives. And the idea here, I find it really, really amazing. After we've talked about giving sacrificially, there's this concept of giving even in deep poverty, holding on to nothing. And then he, he speaks as though there's an abundance that God has as we give. That he, he, he makes grace abound as we give. And we're not talking prosperity gospel stuff here, guys. I hope that's clear. I hate prosperity gospel stuff. Cannot stand it. Don't, don't come in here with that. You will be escorted out. That has no place in this church. What are we talking about? We're not talking name it and claim it. We're not talking about some, somebody with an agenda who wants you to fund their agenda and they're promising things to you that are unbiblical. We're talking about the perspective that our God is a God who loves to give. We have a God who loves to give. I think some of us think of the blessings of God and we picture this giant box of blessings and, and, and he gives a little bit, and, and we don't want to ask for too much because we might not leave enough for somebody else. Our God has infinite blessings. He has so much to give us, but his definition of prosperity is not man's stupid, ridiculous, temporary definition. His definition is so much greater. And we give with the understanding that he has the power and the means to provide for us. And here's what Malachi 3.10 says. Bring the full tithe. And I, I understand we're not talking about an equivalent of 10% for you and I today. But this principle has remained true. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And thereby, God says, put me to the test. Put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I, see if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Our God has heavenly storehouses by which he gives endless, bountiful blessings upon his children. He loves to give. When Jesus asked them, he said, uh, you know, how many of you, if your child asks you for bread, would you give him a snake, right? Or, or, or a stone. And if he asked you for fish, would you give him a snake? If you then, being fallen, would give good things to your children, how much more would your Father in heaven give to those who asks? And he wants to give. He tells us to ask, ask, and it will be given to you. You know, seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened. I mean, as if that's not enough, he goes on, he goes, and to him who asks, right? And to him who seeks, and to him who knocks, he just reiterates it so much over and over and over so that we understand his generosity. Now, that's generosity on the part of our God because he owns it all. The cattle on a thousand hills. He can meet our needs. And so how do these people give so much 
in their desperate situation is because they know that he will provide for them. He will provide for them. He asks us to put him to the test. God doesn't ask us to put him to the test very often. When he does, we better pay attention. We better have faith because that's really what it's all about because we can never have enough faith. His, his biggest desire for you is that you have faith. And, and no more is, is that, that faith is no more uh, presented fully than when you give. When you give sacrificially, you are demonstrating that you are a person of faith, that you are not worried about your future. You are not worried about your provision. Anybody ever go skydiving in here? Yeah? Let's say you've never been before. You're going to try it. And you get to the skydiving place. And they say, we'll give you an option. You can pack your own parachute. Or, some of you might be like, yeah, I got it. Uh, Or, you can let one of our seasoned, credentialed professionals with a perfect track record pack your parachute. Which would you choose? Which would you choose? I know which one I choose. And yet when we don't give sacrificially, when we cling to that which we think is ours, when we have care for our future and how we will provide for ourselves and we withhold from God, we're packing our own parachute. And that's not smart. Because we need to let God hold our future. When you give sacrificially, you're putting yourself in the center of his hand. And let me tell you something. That is smack dab where he wants you. Because his will is best. There's no better place for you to plant your life than in the palm of his hand. Saying, I'm yours, Lord. Everything I've got. Your discipleship depends on it. Amen? Amen. God bless you all. Thank you for your attentiveness. Let's pray and close out. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing upon everybody in this room. We thank you that you gave all for us, God, and we want to surrender to you. We want to entrust you with our lives, with our well-being, with our provision, and we give you the glory for all that you have done. You're such a good and gracious God, and we give you the glory this evening in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.